I'm afraid that you'll have to bear with my uh, allergy-laden voice this morning. Um, Working in the yard yesterday was not the best idea, apparently. Best case scenario, I sound like Jim. Worst case scenario, I sound like a frog, so just bear with me. But we return to our series in the pastoral epistles, and uh, before Easter, Noah walked us through the first few verses of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, dealing with the qualifications for elders in Christ's church. And this was something Paul was very keen to commend to his young protégés in the ancient world, the establishment of elders in their churches for the spiritual oversight of God's people. And elders were to be certain kinds of men, men with certain kinds of character so that they could carry out this shepherding task as under-shepherds of the good shepherd. That is, their life and ministry was to point people to the quintessential shepherd, Jesus Christ. But there's another office in Christ's church, uh, which is likewise designed to reflect something about the heart of Jesus Christ, and that is the office of deacon an office of sympathy and service, an office established to reflect the heart of the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's where we turn our attention this morning, looking in 1 Timothy, both at the character qualities for the diaconate and also the kind of work that is most consonant with the heart of Jesus for those who would serve in his footsteps. So young worshipers, my friends who are with us this morning, I want you to count how many times in the second part of this passage that Paul uses the word widow or widows, some form of that word, and I want you to think about and write down in your work for young worshipers, why are widows so important here? Why why does he use that word so many times? So from 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And from chapter 5, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household And to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and worse is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having 
a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. All flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but these words of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. O God, whose Son, Jesus Christ, is the good shepherd of your people, grant that when we hear his voice, we may know him who calls us each by name and follow him in his example of service, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen. And would you be seated? I had the chance to attend a conference that our deacons helped to host about a month ago, along with a sister church. I'm going to put this up here. Does that bother anyone? We're deviating from the norm here. Randy Neighbors was the uh, keynote speaker, longtime uh, pastor and founder of the New City Network of Churches, and he also coordinates Urban and Mercy Ministries for Mission to North America, which is our denomination's um, domestic mission board. And Randy brought with him a man named Robert Blevins, who has labored with him in these endeavors for many years. And during a breakout session led by Robert on caring for the poor and those struggling with material things, he gave this exercise. He said, break up into groups of three or four and discuss your answer to this question. Here's the scenario. You've just lost your job. You have a little bit of savings, but really only for a couple months' rent, and that's it. What are the first four things that you do? And I'm sitting there with three people from other churches, one of them a fellow pastor, and, and I'm the first one to answer because my, my immediate response without even thinking is, I contact the deacons, right? Like, that's just what you do when you have a need or burden that you can't bear alone. And my colleague, who is a fellow teaching elder, turns to me and says something like, didn't you hear what he said? You've lost your job. You only have a little bit of savings. And I, I said, yeah, and? He said, well, our deacons wouldn't be able to help with that. Our alms fund wouldn't have enough to cover my expenses for a month or two. Now, this surprised me because this brother serves in a fairly affluent church. It's not a new church plant or anything like that. You're fairly typical in a PCA church with resources. But as the seminar went on and I heard more answers to this question from others, I realized that my first impulse was less common than I would have expected. I am sure, without a shadow of a doubt, that this is because of how blessed I am to interact with our 
diaconate and how I'm able to see you all give alms and the deacons distribute alms and the unique blessings that we as a church enjoy in those areas. You are an extremely generous body and your diaconate is a sympathetic and responsive group. I just, I wouldn't have any question about their ability or willingness to help me in a time of need. Nor would I or have I had any hesitation in referring any of you to them when you're in need, both, both within our community and those without our community. And so I'm thankful for our deacons. You may not know this, but when sister churches in our presbytery think about New St. Peter's, one of the distinguishing marks that comes to mind is our diaconate. You'll recall that Paul here in 1 Timothy 3 is giving instructions for the qualification of the two perpetual offices in the church, elder and deacon. Noah laid out for us a few weeks ago Paul's teaching regarding the office of elder, and today we'll dive in for the office of deacon. And it's important to stress, I think, from the outset, especially (coughs) as we give thanks for the work the Lord has done in and through our diaconate, that there are tendencies in our day to to cast the diaconate as a bit of a caricature. And here's what I mean. Budgets and buildings, right? They're they're just a board of advisors or or merely an on-ramp to eldership. But the Bible is clear. The office of deacon is far more In fact, when we think about the tasks and the metaphors used for the office of deacon in Scripture, we begin to think of some of the things at the very center of the heart of God for his people. Things like his care for the poor and the widow and the stranger. Jesus himself came not to be served, but to serve and to empathize with our weakness. That's why our book of church order, our our church's constitution, Summarizing scripture calls the office of deacon one of sympathy and service because of the particular ways that it reflects the heart of Jesus. Deacons are called to reflect and to inspire the character and the mission and the heart of Christ for those in need. And so as with the office of elder, the scripture unambiguously places priority first on The deacon's Christ-like character. Paul continues this section. Deacons likewise. That is, just as I laid out the the character qualifications for the office of elder, so too here am I going to lay out the character qualifications for the office of deacon. And what does he tell us? Deacons must be dignified, that is, worthy of respect, of good character. Not double-tongued or devious in speech, not addicts, not greedy. These are all character qualities that are indicative of integrity and honesty and self-control for the one who serves. And of course, you know, this is so critical for any office or really any position of leadership in the church or Christian ministry. How prone are we to too quickly elevate those with impressive skill sets and resumes. And how often do we see this end in destruction? That's why Paul says they 
Deacons also need to be examined in two things. They need to be able to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That is, they need to know both intellectually and experientially the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they need to be tested, not examined for knowledge or raw skill, but tested, tried before they serve so that they prove themselves blameless. What does Paul mean here? Well, recall what he said earlier in his qualifications for the office of elder, that the elder must be above reproach, that is, free of any charge of impropriety in society or in the church. Not, of course, sinless, but of good repute, both within and without. So a diaconal candidate must be tested, observed, examined by the church as regards his understanding of the gospel, certainly, but also as regards his character according to the qualifications laid forth here. What happens when the church esteems talent and success and charisma more than Christ-like character? Look, the the low-hanging fruit is something like the story told through CT's recent podcast, The Mars Hill Story. And if you're not familiar with it, it's a very public downfall of a very talented and prideful pastor. It happens all the time. But for every Mars Hill, there are many other churches in smaller scales that deal with strife and division and confusion and more when officers are esteemed for their talent, for their skill, for their prominence before their character. So this is a clear call to the men in this church who are officers that while we have Plenty of work to do now in a pastoral transition and plenty of varying skill sets that the Lord has blessed us with to get this work done. That perhaps the most important work that we have to do is to pray for and to hold one another accountable to this Christ-like character. This afternoon, our elders and deacons are gathering for a joint meeting, one of the first times that we've done this in recent years. And I know that we all have plenty of meetings to attend and responsibilities to see to, but again, perhaps the most critical thing for us to do in a divided age and for a church in transition is to meet together for prayer, for real gospel fellowship, and to spur one another on to love and good works. Because when we don't embody these kinds of one another's together, When we as leaders believe that we are on an island, we begin to lose this biblical and necessary sense of Christ-like credibility. What kind of credibility is important for leadership? Well, Paul goes on in verse 11. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Okay, so let's put a pin for a moment at the beginning of chapter, of verse 11 on the phrase, their wives. I realize there's some interpretive things to discuss there, but let's not miss the forest for the trees. Look at what Paul is saying. Deacons must maintain the kind of character and integrity in the most intimate and private places in their lives, that is, in their homes. In other words, if a man isn't serving his wife and children, if he's married, then what kind of credibility does he have to serve in Christ's church? 
Let me say it another way. If a man is serving in Christ's church but not serving his own household, there's a problem. That goes for all of us, elders, deacons. Because what it means to serve well as a deacon is to serve well in the most intimate of environments when no one else is watching. And then, says Paul in verse 13, those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Translation, deacons, by this kind of congruence in service, are meant to reflect and inspire the faith that is in Jesus. They are to bring street cred to the faith we proclaim by their Christ-like example in service, first in the home and then in the church. And it's this kind of congruence, this Christ-like credibility that is inspirational. That is, it sets an example of Christ-like service for others to follow. When I think about the most influential people and inspirational church leaders in my life, those I aspire to be like, I think about my mentor from my time in Florida, an associate pastor at the church where I served. This man is my father's age and has children my own age and now a growing crop of grandchildren and just a beautiful testimony of faithfulness in the family and the church. And when we served together, what I observed in this man was the closest thing, I think, to this Christ-like kind of diaconal ministry that we're talking about. Caring for orphans, bringing kids in need into his home, washing the feet of just about anyone he'd come in contact with, serving in the most menial and unnoticeable ways, loving people, caring for them, providing for them, befriending the friendless and the stranger. This man had a wonderful reputation in that town and in the church, but do you know what? I know all three of his children very well, and they all, every single one of them, have testified to me privately the same kind of service in the home as they grew up. Was it difficult? Yeah. Was their home tumultuous at times? Of course it was. But each one of them would testify to this same level of care and service and love throughout their childhood. And for this reason, because of this consistent, congruent testimony of faithful service, This man is one of the most important voices in my life. That is Christ-like credibility. You know, Pastor Dave, that's his name, often was the one who would counsel and tackle some of the most difficult marital situations in the church, and this would often lead him into some really uncomfortable confrontations. And again, it wasn't always easy or clean, but I guarantee you this, people felt listened to by him, and they listened to him and respected him, struggling spouses, young men and women, even young ministers. And last time I was with Dave in person, he was reflecting on kind of the, the, his career in ministry and maybe what's next, what's the next step. And he said, what do you think I should do? And I said, I think you should train young pastors. He said, but I'm not a theologian, I'm not a good preacher, I'm just a servant. I said, yeah, I think you should train young pastors. Because he embodies this kind of Christ-like credibility that we, young officers in the church, 
elder and deacon need more of. So to my brothers and sisters who, excuse me, to my brothers who are elders and deacons, and to all my brothers and sisters who should and are seeking engage to engage in the ministry of the church, the question is, who are your mentors? Who do you look up to? What kind of credibility do you look for? Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I do want to address for a moment one question the text evokes. You know, when you come into some difficult interpretive issues as a preacher, you really have two choices. And the first choice is, you can hope the rest of your sermon is good enough that people will forget about the difficulty in the text. Uh, And the second is, you can just dive into it. And since I'm not a good enough preacher, we're going to choose the latter. Um, In verse 11, the word for their wives really is the generic Greek word for women or wives. It's translated frequently either way. So that, for example, the New American Standard Version of the Bible translates this verse, women, likewise. Any translation has to, at times, make decisions about words that leave some ambiguity. And so the ESV, the version that we commonly, not always, but commonly preach from, has, for exegetical, not merely ideological reasons, chosen wives here. And if you're interested in getting into the weeds on that, I'm happy to speak to you, but what I want you all to know is this. There really are a few legitimate options for how we understand what particular group Paul is addressing here. Is he addressing the wives of deacons? who ostensibly would be involved in a diaconal ministry as well? Is he addressing a separate group, sometimes called deaconesses? Is he addressing some other group of women who may have served as assistants to the deacons? And of course, the question behind this question is, does this text support an order or office in the church for female deacons or deaconesses? Several things to say here. If you don't have the prior context of uh, the the way Paul speaks about men and women in corporate worship from chapter 2, I really do encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. It's needed context that we don't have time to rehash today, especially with regard to the radical dignity that Paul addresses women with in the church. But the second thing I would say is, personally, I lean toward agreeing with the ESV here, because in the very next verse... Paul uses the same word to express the idea that a deacon should be the husband of one wife. And words don't usually change meaning from verse to verse like that. I I think that wives is a fair translation here. But the third thing I want to say, and the most important thing I want to say, is that doesn't necessarily solve the issue. And that's not the main point. There are plenty of other exegetical considerations in the New Testament when we think of women and their relationship to the diaconal office. About five years ago, our denomination commended a study report on the issue that I can send to you if you're interested in reading further. But we can't simply take this text to settle the matter, nor should we look for it to do so. Because... Whatever the answer is, I think what Paul wants us to see here is that there were clearly 
women involved in the ministry of the diaconate? Were they ordained or not ordained? Were they called deacons or deaconesses uh, or diaconal assistants? We aren't sure, but we are sure of this. There were women involved in the ministries of sympathy and service. I love what Randy Neighbors said at the conference that I mentioned at the outset. He said, if you don't have women involved in your diaconal ministry, you're crazy. Why? Because it's a ministry of sympathy and service and mercy and care. And it's a ministry that's not merely meant to be carried out by ordained officers, but rather undertaken by the whole church under their leadership. In other words, the deacons are meant to inspire a kind of Christ-like care. This is brought out by Paul's lengthy instructions later in 1 Timothy on care for widows, which we read a few moments ago. How do we connect the ministry of deacons to this instruction regarding widows? Is that a leap? Well, recall that in the book of Acts, the first diaconate was established in the church in Jerusalem because of the issue of widow care. In other words, by the time Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus, there's an established tradition in the church of caring for the vulnerable and particularly widows through the office of deacon. And as a side note, it's interesting that the diaconate was also established in the context of this issue of partiality, the the Hellenistic widows in the church were apparently being neglected in favor of the Hebrew widows, but that's another sermon for another day. Paul here gives a lengthy set of instructions, and they seem fairly logistical, don't they? Like, put her on the list if she's this, but not this, and, and what do we make of that? Well, he's answering questions such as, what, what kind of widows are truly vulnerable and in need? And what is the responsibility of their family? How should the church enter in and care and develop a, a mercy ministry toward a particular vulnerable population? But again, let's not miss the forest for the trees. Paul is assuming that the church will care for the vulnerable. And in this case, widows. Why does he assume that? Because this is the clear heart of God for those in need. It's expressed throughout all scripture. You heard it read earlier. What is God like? Moses proclaims he's not partial. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Paul assumes here that Timothy and his church in Ephesus are committed to the expression of the mission in the heart of God for those in need. And he's giving him some very practical instruction for how to engage the church in carrying out that mission. He details the importance of family obligation and of remarriage for younger widows who are likely dealing with this cultural trend of licentiousness and independence that we were talking about when we covered chapter 2. That is, he's not demeaning younger widows here and saying we should just hang them out to dry. It's most likely that the young women in this church were tempted by this movement of the new Roman woman that was sweeping through the ancient world, a, a sexual revolution of sorts that emphasized independence and license. Paul says, don't give in to this temptation. So he gives particular instruction, but what's the point? Care for the vulnerable. 
and find out who the vulnerable are among you because God cares about the vulnerable. That is incontrovertible in Scripture. And how often is it illustrated in the ministry of Jesus from his seeking out of the woman with a a flow of blood in Mark uh, chapter 5 or raising a widow's son in a little town called Nain. This is actually an incredible story. He comes to this town and he happens, right, happens upon this burial scene. And we're told that the dead man is the only son of his mother who's now who, who, who has been widowed. And that means he was her only means of provision. So here's this grieving woman who's lost her son, and she's about to lose everything else. And Jesus approaches her, and the text says he had compassion on her. And he entered into her grief. And he reaches out and touches the pallet that the young man was being carried on. By the way, an act that would have made him ceremonially unclean. And then Jesus speaks into death and he commands the young man to arise and it says that then he gave him to his mother. Her hope was restored. Her vulnerabilities provided for and protected. Her death brought to life. Jesus consistently demonstrated his compassion for the vulnerable and the orphan and the widow and the stranger and those in need. And friends, this is the heart of the work of the deacon. And the work our deacons are called to engage us all in. Make make no mistake about it, the church does not simply elect deacons to take care of the poor so that we don't have to. No, that's partiality. Instead, the church recognizes that deacons are those who have served well in their household and demonstrated care for the vulnerable, and we elect them to lead us in that. You know what the BCO, our Constitution, says about this. It says, it's the duty of deacons to develop the grace of liberality in in their church members. That is, they're to lead the way in this care for the vulnerable among us and around us and to engage us all in that work. And in this, I have so much respect And so much thankfulness for our deacons over the life of our church. And especially these past few years as they've thought through very intentionally how to engage us all in various ministries of mercy through their quarterly focus. In the first quarter, you you heard them focus our attention on some of the most vulnerable people in our society. Young, struggling, pregnant mothers and their babies. And they called us to give Certainly our money, but also our time. And if you want to know more about how to do that, reach out to a deacon. This quarter, as Rodman mentioned last week, they will draw our focus to our sister churches in town who are serving those on the margins of our society. So stay tuned for more information about how to get involved in those works. But why? Why do we do this? Why do we do it? Why do the deacons call us to do it? Because... It reflects and inspires the character and the mission and the heart of Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead took the form of a servant and considered our need, the need for salvation, our vulnerability in sin and darkness and want, and who became obedient to death on a cross for us. 
who loved us at our darkest and redeemed us from the pit, who rescued us when we were strangers and aliens and calls us now fellow citizens, who reconciles orphans to God that we might be called sons and daughters. Oh, and if you don't know that Jesus, I pray that you would meet him today in his word and at his table, even through the example of the service and faith of the deacons here at New St. Peter's, imperfect as they are, may they and may we all reflect the character and the mission and the heart of Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you care for the orphan, for the stranger, for the widow. We thank you that that care took on flesh and dwelt among us provided a way for us out of the pit, rescued us when we were at our darkest, calls us now sons and daughters. And may we be inspired to serve and to give of ourselves in the way that our Savior has taught us. In Jesus' name, amen.